Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We start today, though, with the traffic jams in Stanley Park, the continuing battle over the bike lane there. Yeah, this is the eternal war still raging especially after the traffic jams in the park on the long weekend. Bumper-to-bumper traffic there on the single-vehicle lane heading into the park. I've got John Cooper standing by. Have a listen to this here first. This is Sue Kafka. She represents some of the small businesses operating in the park, including Prospect Point. She's not happy. Have a listen. For many of us here today, summer's the time of year that allows us to make the money that will keep us going through the winter. Faced with another summer like last year, the the Parks Board decision to restrict car traffic to one lane again is devastating. And it sends a clear message that they don't care and they're not listening. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, running for mayor this fall. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. John, thank you very much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me very much, Rudy. You bet. Thanks for doing it. Now, when you saw the traffic jam there in Stanley Park, what went through your mind? Well, I mean, it was the consequence that we expected. Both Tricia Barker and I, uh, NPA commissioners, were against this plan from the start let me say, you know, Stanley Park is not a, just a Vancouver park. Stanley Park is a park for the whole region and really the whole world. It's a, it's a green jewel in Vancouver. And, yeah. you know, there was not a transportation problem before. We have a seawall bike route, which has just got ri- written up in the New York Times as, as being just absolutely fabulous. This is a result of a move to close one of the, one of the lanes in the park and, uh, exclusively for cyclists. And it, with those cyclists and cars have always shared that, and they've tended to be faster riders. Uh, the seawall has always been a safe and welcoming place for everybody. And so it's, it's, a, it's a problem that was actually created because the Green Cope Alliance on Park Board really uh, saw it as an ideological battle rather than thinking about what's best for residents and, and, and tourists and everybody who loves Stanley Park. Yeah, you voted against it, um, and I know you're saying that. Do you feel like this is what you predicted would happen? Oh, absolutely. You know, there was a similar uh, uh, thing done in the 90s, and it had the same effect, and it was it was removed. You know, history tends to uh, tends to repeat itself, and I think we're seeing that uh, we're seeing that now. And certainly, uh, you know, our, our we're going to be introducing our NPA team of councillors and park board tonight at an event, and there we are committed to reopening. Uh, that that lane. The other thing is, is one of the things that's happened is the closure of Beach Avenue. So you can't exit on Beach Avenue. That's one of the reasons the traffic has has got so bad. So usually, you had two exits to Stanley Park, either Georgia or uh, Beach Avenue. Now Beach Avenue has been turned over to a temporary bike lane by the city, and that's caused all the traffic to have to funnel back on Georgia Street. And that's where really that's what's creating a lot of the big backup. 
Speaking of Vancouver Park Board, Commissioner John Cooper, one of the things that I know I've heard from people, and I know you've probably heard more than me, is from, from people who have mobility issues in the park. Maybe they use a wheelchair or they use a walker or you're an elderly person, you can't walk very far. Well, that bike lane doesn't help you very much. You need a vehicle to get into the park to enjoy it. Let me play a clip here for you from... Uh, lawyer Phil Rankin, who has been speaking out in this in the past, and we'll get your thoughts on the other side here. Have a listen. Recently, they said, well, it's for climate change. That is a lie as well, because there's nothing, uh, one lane of idling cars is not going to be stopping carbon emissions. They haven't said how much carbon is going to be saved by having one lane, because there isn't any. So then it just becomes a justification to giving one, a small group all access, and the large group no access. Okay, so... Well, I'm not sure it's no access. It's a restricted access if you're in a vehicle, right? Your thoughts? It is. But you got to remember the uh, the vehicle lane is also shared by the trolley, the horse trolley. Mm-hmm. So when they get behind a horse trolley, there are a few spots to pull out. But uh, that's creating uh, congestion as well. You know, the, the, the businesses in the park really need to be supported. The other thing that is lost is the park board has lost almost $2 million in parking revenue as a result of this change. And this Green Cope Alliance don't seem to have any thought for financial responsibility because that's a you know a couple of percent of our overall budget of the park board. That means that's money we don't have to do to do other things to look after parks in other ways. So, all in all, I just think it's a disaster. And uh, certainly, our team um, will look to uh, reopen Beach Avenue. Certainly, on a council and Merrillty group, and the park board team will look to you know get Stanley Park back to where it was, where people can freely enjoy it. I I know that people with mobility issues have problems getting in and out. And I'm told, I was speaking to the CEO of the Vancouver Aquarium yesterday, and he told me they've had a number of incidents where the first responders have been delayed getting in to help uh, people if they have a medical uh, emergency. That's another issue that that has really not been discussed and and is certainly a concern. Uh, We've been lucky up to now. Yeah, there's a lot of other parts of the park that a lot of people want to enjoy, whether it's the aquarium or, or the pitch and putt golf or the kids' water park. Or the miniature and, train, you know, the, the yeah. miniature train that families like to go on. So it's just a poorly thought out and, and I think um, not well executed. I, I, I think that um, it's temporary. I hope that it... You know, I hope that it stops because uh, the tour buses, I'm told as well. I, I know a friend of mine who's in that industry said they're not even they're not even running buses through Stanley Park anymore. They just they've taken it off the routes, which is quite tragic actually, because so many people get a positive impression of our city by that by visiting and, and taking a tour bus. And the the absolute, you know, the visual pollution of those orange cones all through the park. I mean, it's ter- it's mm-hmm. absolutely terrible. Speaking of pollution, do you agree with lawyer Phil Rankin's assessment there? I mean, if this was done, one of the reasons invoked at the start of this was climate change and let's get people out of cars and onto bikes and walking and public transit. But if you're creating a situation where you've got a traffic jam on a busy weekend and cars just idling, I mean, that's not very good for the environment. No, and you don't need to be a climate scientist to figure that out. It's pretty, it's pretty obvious to anybody who, who observes. And, and nobody's saying that bikes have access, have always had great access to Stanley Park. That, yeah. that uh, seawall bike lane is one of the most great cycling routes in the world. And yeah. bikes were always free. Fast, people who wanted to ride 
quicker. We're always free to, to share that road. And, and the speed limit is low. It's 30 kilometers through the park. So it's not like it's unsafe for an experienced rider to be on that, uh, the main Stanley Park drive. It has never been an issue. And, and uh, I think it's a bit of a big mistake that they've, they've made here. Your park, sure. your park board colleague, Tricia Barker, you mentioned her earlier. She was on the Jill Bennett show yesterday talking about this issue. And she made a promise on that show yesterday. Let me play it for you. I mean, if we put in a bike lane, we can take it out. These are still temporary closures. Why wouldn't we just put it back to this amazing place where everyone could come and enjoy this wonderful park? So you mentioned that you have a a campaign event tonight, John. So is that your promise to the people of Vancouver? If you guys can form a majority on that park board, what, you'd get rid of that bike lane? Absolutely, and I would restore the exit on Beach Avenue so that people could, exit and entrance actually, so people can enjoy separately park, second beach, and make and bring bring this park back so that people feel comfortable getting there and everybody can enjoy it. It's not about restricting anybody's access. And certainly those with disabilities who have to get down to the park, they may need a motor vehicle or a van to get down there. Right now, it's, there's a, a less spots for them. There's less access for them. And that's really unconscionable. We, sh- we just need to be thinking about everybody. And that's, if I'm the mayor, Okay. That's what I'll be doing every day. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Welcome back. And it's the great bike lane debate in Stanley Park. The battle continues to rage. I think it's going to heat up again here in advance of an election in the fall. Lots of phone calls. Robert in Burnaby. Hi, Robert. What do you think? Hi. I, it was the NDP and Green's plan to turn Stanley Park into a public resort for its West End West uh, End uh, voters who are, and I'll guarantee you dollars to donuts, 99% of them are NDP Green voters. And they did this slowly and methodically, taking away the, the, the car lanes and then replacing temporarily with bike lanes. Now, they're, they're all permanent now, and then before they got rid of the, uh, the bike lanes on the seawall, now they're there now. So they're, they're basically taking over the park, and anyone tells me they're not trying to turn it into a public res, private resort for the, their voters, I think they're fools. Thank you. So how, how do they turn it into a private resort just by restricting access to people? Well, by restricting access, yeah. it, 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 most of the people on the West End are either cycling there or walking there. Yeah. Um, and, and this, of course, uh, allows them access. Cars? No, not so much, except yeah. in the wintertime, maybe. And I think it's quite clever, but I think it's nefarious also. Uh, Robert, thank you for the call. Aaron on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Aaron. What do you think? Oh, hey, Mike. Um, uh, Aaron Jasper, a former uh, park commissioner oh, yeah. with, uh, with John Cooper. I actually was calling sure. to, uh, John might have to just make sure he's sitting down, but I, I agree 100% with what the uh, point that John was making in the interview yeah. there. Um, right. And uh, no, I, I listen, when I was on the park board, I mean, we, I think we were trying to strike that right balance of, you know, uh, local access, access to tourists supporting the local businesses. I think John rightly pointed out that, you know, Stanley Park is a huge source of revenue. And those are the monies that the park board uses to fund, you know, everything from lifeguards to, you know, staffing at the community center. So, you know, it's trying to strike that right balance. Um, I think this move has missed the mark. Um, you know, maybe on a seasonal aspect, maybe if you're going to do the, the cycling or the, the one lane closure in the off season or after the cruise ship season, but I think to have this lane closure, now that we're back with the tourist season, the cruise ships, the tour buses, 
uh, and all the other points that I've raised in terms of just local access, uh, just for locals in Vancouver. I, I think it misses, yeah. I think it really misses the mark. Okay, well, that's very interesting to hear your perspective, Aaron. So what do you think should be done? Put it back to the way it was before, just two vehicle lanes? I think so, for sure. During the, yeah. the, the busy busy tourist season, I think the uh, the two lanes need to be open. I, I was down there in, in Stanley Park on Sunday, uh, walking the seawall. And again, you know, yeah, there are a lot of cyclists on the on the seawall, but, you know, no accidents, no calamities. There's you know, it's a, a you know it's a solution looking for a problem that doesn't really exist. So, the the, the car mm. traffic, I saw that uh, again. You know what? Maybe, maybe leading up into the cruise ship season, sure, why not? Right. But once we get into the cruise ship season, once we're into May, all the way to the end of September, then we really need okay. to have those two lanes open. All right. Thanks for calling in, Aaron Jasper, there, former Vancouver Park Board Commissioner Mark on the line in Maple Ridge. Hi, Mark. What do you think? Hi, Mike. First time caller here. Cool. Um. I've been going down to that park. My parents started taking me there when I was six years old. Well, I'm 68 now. Uh, I had a condo in, in uh, Kitsilino, and I would run across the Burrard Street Bridge and around the park and come home, uh, go down to the pool in Kits. Um, and now I'm back. I'm out on Maple Ridge, as you can tell. Well, my wife and I went down to the park uh, it was probably in September last year. And what we'd like, like to do is go down to the park, go for a drive around, stop someplace, go for a walk, and then go from there down to Granville Island. It was kind of a circle thing what we would do. Yeah. Now, when I started coming around to where uh, Beach Avenue, to get on the Beach Avenue by Second Beach there, yeah. and it was all changed, and I'm going, are you kidding? So... I take off towards Georgia, and it's backed up probably 10 cars before you even get on to Georgia. So would you even go down there now anymore? My wife, she says, if you try to take me down there, she'll be in divorce court. (laughs) (laughs) He was so upset, and so was I. You know, a whole part of your day is sitting in traffic. They've got to open that up. I can understand how people want to ride their bikes there, but damn it, on the road, you need it for two cars. And Vancouver, there's a lot more rain than there is sun. So yeah. to have it half and half with bikes and, and cars, it's not going to work. Mark, thank you very much for the call. Appreciate it a lot. All right, here we go now with our capacity crisis series focusing on BC's healthcare system and the campaign for family doctors in British Columbia. More than one million people in BC do not have a family doctor. Pressure growing now on the BC government to do something about it. The fee-for-service model for paying family doctors frequently cited as one of the problems. Have a listen to this now. You're going to hear Health Minister Adrian Dix here in this report from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. Family doctors have been asking the province for an overhaul to the fee-for-service model in order to have more payment options. Financial assistance is needed to help cover the costs of running a small business, as well as enhanced efforts to get more doctors trained and accredited. BC's health minister claims the province is working to resolve these problems. Because there are other opportunities for family practice doctors today, and we've got to make sure we get that balance right. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Dr. Carlin Mann, a, a family doctor. He's with the group Family Doctors for Better Patient Care in BC. Dr. Mann, thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Can you tell me a little bit about your practice? Where do you op- operate as a family doctor? 
Yeah, I've actually uh, worked part-time as a family doctor in New Westminster. And just like many other family doctors, I have, quote-unquote, a side gig to help me work here. Uh, and I, I do rural locums out in Alberta, actually. Oh, wow. Okay, that's that's very interesting. And what what kind of changes have you seen as a family doctor in BC over the last few years? Well, I think the biggest thing for me that I've noticed in my own practice is more and more of my own patients are asking if I can take on their family or friends because yeah. uh, they're unable to find a family doctor or their doctor retired and they couldn't uh, find a replacement. Uh, so that, to me, actually adds a lot of distress because, you know, I want to help as many people as I can, but obviously I, I can't be everybody's family doctor. Right. So you have to, when you're asked that question, you have to give them the bad news and say, well, I'm not taking new patients? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. so... What kind of impact does it have on people when they don't have a family doctor? Like, I think about my own family. Like, we had a family doctor for a few years, and then he, he moved away, and there was no one to take his place, and we've been without one, like a lot of people in British Columbia ever since then. When people don't have that connection to a family doctor, what kind of what kind of impact does that have, would you say? I mean, it's it's huge, right? I mean, family doctors are the face of the healthcare system for many patients that have a family doctor. Uh, we help figure out what types of tests they need, if they need to be seeing a specialist. And more importantly, too, a lot of preventative care uh, is done by family doctors, screening for high blood pressure, heart disease, uh, cancer diagnosis. Uh, all of those things w wouldn't be able to happen if you didn't have a family doctor. So that's why it's vital that every British Columbian have access to a family doctor. Uh, and not to mention, too, like, I mean, it's a little bit hard to share your deepest, darkest secrets with a doctor you've only met one time and probably won't ever meet again through a walk-in clinic or urgent care or the emergency room. So being comfortable with somebody that you trust and know is really vital in providing the type of care that British Columbians deserve. That's a really great point. You mentioned that you're a part-time family doctor. You've got a side gig there as well. Have you ever considered shutting down your family doctor practice? We keep hearing about clinics closing down, family doctors getting out of the business. Have you considered doing that yourself? Yeah, I, I, it's definitely crossed my mind a few times. And the biggest issue is that, you know, as a family doctor, and I can speak for many of my colleagues that feel the same way, is we as family doctors don't feel valued by the government and health authority uh, in, in various ways. We're not uh, being valued. And that is starting to enter a tipping point where, you know, more and more things are happening that we're not feeling valued and maybe we just need to be doing something else. And like Minister Dick said in your uh, snippet there, that there are other opportunities for us as doctors trained in family medicine to work. Uh, those opportunities are much more, uh, they're much more eye-opening. I mean, they're, they're, they're uh, better paying and less yeah. responsibility. Um, so, I mean, that's right now where our government, unfortunately, is valuing uh, family doctors is to work in situations where episodic care is given, like at urgent and primary care centers or in the hospital, and not really valuing the important work that we do as family doctors for British Columbians. Speaking to Dr. Carlin Mann, family doctors for better patient care in BC, we hear a lot, too, about doctors facing burnout. Have you heard about that? Like, why is that happening? Is there, are doctors, are some family doctors burning out? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's part of the issue is as we, as we find that our value is not being recognized by the government, 
uh, we feel more and more burnout. I mean, I'm sure everybody would feel that, you know, if the work you're doing isn't really being valued, that uh, you're going to feel burnout. So I can kind of give you some examples if you'd like. Sure. Yes, please. Yeah. I mean, the, the first one is over the last few years, there's just been more and more administrative tasks downloaded onto us as family doctors, completing forms, needing to apply to the government to have our patients' uh, medications covered. Um, and the just the amount of paperwork is, is skyrocketing. Um, our fee-for-service system, which 90% of family doctors are paid through, hasn't changed for almost 30 years. We're still paid per visit. Uh, so if we spend 30 minutes with you or 30 seconds with you, we're paid the exact same amount. Uh, and that really needs to change to show us uh, to show us that the government values our time. Uh, and that time issue is probably the biggest reason why a lot of doctors are burning out. Some doctors are working almost the whole day, you know, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. in clinic, seeing patients, then going home and charting and doing paperwork until 2 a.m. So it's 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 just wow. really not sustainable. So our government really needs to work harder to find ways to show that they value us more. Um, and changing the fee-for-service system is one major role in that. Could you, like, for people who are listening to this and they're they're hearing a doctor complain about, well, you know, we're we're not valued enough. We're maybe we're not making enough money. You know, they may think, "What? You're a doctor. You got to be kidding me." I thought doctors made a ton of money. Like, how would you? How could could you explain that? Like, how does this this fee for service model? Why is it not working? Yeah, I mean, it's not working because patients in BC want to spend time with their family doctors, and we as doctors do spend that time. Um, like I said, 30-second visit or a 30-minute visit, visit, we're still paid the exact same amount, which right. uh, works out to about $35. So, you know, it makes it really tough to balance the needs of the clinic and paying your staff and obviously earning a reasonable salary um, with the needs of, of the financial pressures of the clinic. So what we need to do is have the government show us that they value us for the time that we're spending us uh, spending with patients and and change and modernize the fee for service system. Um, and I'll just mention that you know the like I said, ninety percent of doctors are on fee for service in family medicine. And in twenty twenty, we saw a drastic change in how we practice medicine by the introduction of telehealth fee for service codes. You know, overnight we were able to do phone calls and video visits with our patients because of COVID nineteen. I mean, the same type of thinking could be applied here to really help support family doctors that are spending the time with patients but aren't being valued for it uh, by the government through the visit-based fee-for-service system. Yeah, sometimes when I talk about this issue, you get a kind of deja vu because I remember a previous liberal government when the liberals were in power struggling with the same issue. And it's kind of like the tables just get turned. Sometimes the parties just change positions. And back then it was the NDP complaining about to the liberals. What about family doctors? Why, why is just this continuing? Why does this not, how come it doesn't get fixed? It just seems to go on and on and on. And do you think it could get worse, especially with the demographic bubble we're facing here with an aging population? Yeah, I mean, that's that's my biggest fear right there is because, you know, our baby boomer populations, they're, they're all getting uh, older, of course, turning more than 65. And I was listening earlier to your seniors advocate on Simi show that, uh, you know, people over 65, 25 percent of them need a family doctor compared to maybe one percent younger than 65. So we're going to see a massive influx of people needing family doctors. Uh, 
you know, I can't really speak to why family doctors haven't been valued for such a long time, but I think what we're hearing loud and clear now is that people want a family doctor. I think people know what value we bring to their health care and what they and what we do to keep them healthy. And, you know, everybody's getting older and worried that if you don't have a family doctor, what does that mean? I mean, we're seeing the effects of that now. You know, people waiting four, five, six, seven hours outside an urgent and primary care center or emergency room just for a prescription refill. I mean, yeah. that's something a family doctor could easily easily do for you. So uh, so it is really concerning, and I'm glad more people in British Columbia are speaking out and speaking loudly. Yeah, I mean, people going to an emergency room to get a prescription renewed is just obviously a, a misuse of the healthcare resources, right? You also mentioned, like, I've heard from family doctors who've told me that they have people, patients who, are, who may not have a family doctor now who may be on the wrong meds, you know, or if they're relying on walk-in clinics and going to a doctor they've never seen before, you know, they might not know what medications they've been on before and people might be on the wrong meds or they're not on medications they should be on. Correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's the value in having a, a family doctor is, you know, with my patients, I I can remember or at least look up, you know, what they were on four, five, six years ago. Whereas yeah. if you're visiting, you know, multiple clinics or urgent cares or ER, you know, that, that record is not, unfortunately, not going to be available. Uh, so it does make it hard harder to uh, manage somebody through episodic care, uh, like the urgent and primary cares versus having, having a family doctor. I mean, it makes sense to have a family doctor. There's been lots of uh, studies shown uh, that family doctors actually save the healthcare system money because we help prevent people from getting sicker and ending yeah. up in the ER and and uh, being hospitalized but uh uh yeah it's it's definitely time for the government to realize that uh, we provide a great value to the system and and obviously patients now are speaking out uh which is great yeah. so last question for you doctor man you mentioned earlier that you're not taking new patients i'm sure there's a lot of people listening saying wow i'd love it if this guy was my doctor like for someone who is looking for a family doctor do you have any tips on how they could maybe find one yeah, that, that's a really tough question. I mean, I do know some communities have like a, a family doctor registry where you can sign up to be on a wait list for family doctors. But I think more than anything, I think they need to write to their MLAs and and uh, advocate that, you know, there needs to be changes to the system to help us uh, retain and recruit more family doctors. And I think the way to do that is to modernize our fee-for-service system immediately. If we implement time-based uh, fee-for-service codes, I can tell you a lot of doctors and recent graduates, friends of mine, they would start a practice, um, but not in the current situation. You mean, okay, does, being paid. does that mean, okay, if you have a longer appointment with a, a patient, you get paid more? Yeah, would, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. If I if I spend uh, if I spend thirty minutes with you explaining something that's more complex, or you've got ten different problems that you want to deal with, and it takes yeah. thirty minutes, I'll be happy to uh, do that all for you. And a lot of doctors do do that already, but they're just taking a huge uh, a huge cut on you know what they're able to do in terms of uh, you know right. office overhead and that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, okay. we just Thank need you. to modernize our fee for service system. So. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks a lot, Mike. I really appreciate uh, you bringing attention to this. Let's go right to your phone calls on the shortage of family doctors. David in Surrey. Hi, David. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to uh, 
reflect what everyone else is probably experiencing with uh, the short, short doctor visits. I actually left uh, Richmond doctor uh, years ago because he was limiting us to one or two ailments per visit and yeah. uh, maybe five or six minutes. And then it was a rush to get you on to the next, uh, to get on to the next patient. Yeah. It, it, that I can, I can see them being paid if they can justify how long they were with the patient. Um, by all means, pay them for the 20 minutes. If it's a two-minute visit, pay them for a two-minute visit. Right. Just like any other business. Yeah, right. Thank you for thank you for that. I think it's a great point, and I and I thought the guest brought that up as well. I mean, if you're coming in for like a two-minute prescription renewal, why should you get paid the same as as a more complicated visit? Thanks for that, Ed in Vancouver. Hi, Ed. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank. <clears throat> yeah. Thank. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. The suggestions from your doctor, however, I think would increase costs in the healthcare a lot. Sure. Sure, they would. Yeah. So already they're very high, and increasing yeah. over many years. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know how that will work. And the second point is uh, in countries like South Korea, I don't believe they have the family doctor system. And yet their yeah. health outcomes are as good, I think, as Canada's or better. Okay. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for bottom lining it because it, that's true. I mean, this we're talking money here. We're talking money. We're talking big bucks. Roger in Vancouver. Hi, Roger. Go ahead. Good morning, Mike. I think you remember, I think it was about three years ago that the Saudi Arabians got upset about some remarks that we made, and they withdrew 1,000 medical students from Canada. Yes. My, my problem is, why are we training all these offshore people to be in the medical thing when they go back to their country to practice? We all know it's about financing because they pay a lot more money to be in school than our Canadian students do. I think that's the thing that has to stop. Thank you for that. I guess it works the other way too, right? Maybe we should be getting more do foreign doctors into Canada. Tom in Surrey. Hey, Tom, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Hey, great, great thing. Hey, there's no doubt this is going to cost the system more money, but it's not a good use of money to be waiting in two hours in an ER for a prescription uh, renewal. Hey, yeah. I got a good buddy who's a doctor. He says they were never trained to be business people at school. He's got to see four to five people per hour in his office. He gets no pension, and that's just to cover his costs. He's always worried. He doesn't have enough time to actually see these people because they have complicated problems, but he's got to get the people through to cover his costs. He says yeah. he deals with this psychological dilemma every day. So we got to think big picture here. Okay, here we go with our continuing focus on BC's healthcare capacity crisis and nearly 1 million people without a family doctor right now. Maybe you've heard about the campaign called BC Healthcare Matters. I think they're doing a, an amazing job highlighting this issue and putting some pressure on government to do something about it. Maybe you've seen some of their lawn signs, for example. I think those are really, really effective. I've got Camille Curry standing by, organizer and founder of BC Healthcare Matters. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. Curry founded BC Healthcare Matters back in February after learning she would lose her physician at the Eagle Creek Medical Clinic. And she quickly realized she wasn't alone. We are ready and willing to listen and meet at any time to talk about the tangible now solutions that the citizens and our organization deserve and need to see. 
Okay, you heard the voice there of Camille Curry. She joins me now, founder and organizer of BC Healthcare Matters. Camille, thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, congratulations on your success so far in, in highlighting this issue. I, I think you've done a, a really good job of it. We saw a big turnout at a rally at the BC legislature. I've seen a lot of your lawn signs around as well. Can you tell us a bit about this this campaign, the petition drive you have going, and why you started this? Yeah, so um, as you said, we did just have our rally on May 19th, and I think that was an absolute fabulous success. Um, it really brought out a lot of citizens and medical professionals from all over the island, but as well as from the mainland. Um, and it really gave people an opportunity to, you know, gather together and share their stories and also share their frustration. And for me personally, it was actually a really emotional um, kind of event because it was really great to see so many people come out, but it was also incredibly sad to have to see so many people come out to support um, our need for addressing this crisis. Um, my family was uh, first thrown kind of into this because, as uh, the recording just suggested, we lost our family doctor back at the end of January. Um, and our family has complex medical needs. And so I started looking into what our options would be, how we'd be able to provide the care, pardon me, get the care that my family needs. And it didn't take very long before it became very apparent that there was little to no choices for us. Um, and so I just decided I, I couldn't sit by and just, you know, watch this happen and just complain. And I am a, you know, mover person. And so I said, enough is enough. And so I started yeah. BC Healthcare Matters to basically, as you suggested, right, kind of activate the citizens and gather together the people that are being affected by this so that we can express that this isn't okay and we're not going to stand by idle and watch this happen. And for us to develop a group, which we've done, that is transformed into an amazing group of people to basically keep, you know, proposing calls to action for citizens to get involved in so that everybody can have a voice in this. Yeah, can you can you expand a little bit about you know what it's like when you've got a family, you've got family members, you got some complex healthcare challenges for like for people who are in the happy position of having good health, and maybe you just need to go to a walk-in clinic occasionally, get a prescription or whatever. Maybe yeah. this is not such a big problem, but when you have some complex care challenges, that's when a family doctor can really help. Correct. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, in my 20s, I was incredibly healthy, never would have thought I have any health conditions or problems. And then my 30s hit and I personally developed a numerous um, health problems. And I do have two young children that have had quite a few health problems since a young age. But, um, you know, one of the things that stands out to me, because when I do think of these other individuals that may not understand the importance of the family doctor is that you just don't know what you don't know. So for a long time, I didn't know what was wrong with my children. I didn't know why they were so sick so often. And it was because of having a family doctor that we were able to piece that together and figure out what was going on with them and how we were going to help them and how we were going to treat them. So I think it's really important for people out there that, you know, maybe aren't facing health struggles right now themselves to just remember, though, that you never know when you might. And also, if you have, if you are fortunate enough to have a family doctor, I really want everyone out there with a family doctor to know right now that that is not a guarantee. You need to think about how long is your family doctor going to stick around in this system crumbling the way it is. Yeah, speaking to Camille Curry, founder of BC Healthcare Matters, what has their response to the campaign been like so far? Like, I know you've got this online petition drive going, right? How many signatures have you collected on the petition so far? 
Yeah, so we actually got it tabled on Thursday, and it was up to 42,000 signatures. Um, Yeah, so it's a large volume of individuals, and it's great to see that because, again, it just shows that there's lots of people out there that are willing to speak up and to um, sign on with the endeavors that we're getting onto here. So like you mentioned before, we've got the lawn signs going out, which are great. They're an amazing way to be able to um, just share our our group's goals and who we are. And then also we're starting to put together more citizen activism opportunities that will come up. And we want to do it in all the cities because this is a province-wide crisis. And so while I live in Victoria and much of the government is here, we definitely are continuing to look to expand our team outside of this so that we can get everybody in the province involved because we all deserve better from the system. Speaking of the government, have you been able to get a meeting with anyone from government? And what are they saying to you? No, we haven't at this time, not with the NDP. We have had meetings with MLAs from the other parties. And um, it was Liberal health critic Shirley Bond that tabled our petition for us. But unfortunately, the NDP has not come forward with um, anybody willing to speak with us at this time. And we would really love to because we think just as important as it is for them to be sitting down and doing negotiations with the doctors associations, it's important for them to sit down and to hear what we as a citizen group have to say as well, because it's our taxpayer money and this is our health care and our health that we're talking about. Yeah, why do you, how do we think how do you think we got into this position? Like I I've just been checking out your website here this morning and there's a lot of good background on there. Like for people who are wondering how we got into this situation, how did we get to this point, do you think? <laughs> Yeah, so it's definitely something that's been coming on for a long time. You know, one of the saddest things is is that when you go to look up, um, if you even just put in BC family doctor crisis, you'll find news reports from 10 years ago even. And so this has been coming for quite a while. But I think the most, you know, kind of poignant things that have happened in the last, say, five years is that um, there's been a mass redistribution of our health care funds. And a lot of that has gone into these urgent primary care centers. And so the government decided in 2017 that it was going to be their initiative to um, transform the healthcare system. And I think the problem is, is that right now, you know, five years later, we're looking at the system and we're not seeing the transform transformational changes that they had promised. And we're just seeing a lot of our healthcare money being used in areas that are not providing um, tangible benefits to the citizens. So, you know, when people are concerned about, well, the doctors are out there saying that they need more money and we don't have more money to give. Well, I would suggest that, you know, it's important for us to hold our government accountable and demand more transparency and for us to take a look and see what are these urgent primary care budgets, how much are they costing, and is this the appropriate use of our health care ministry funds right now? Um, The other thing I think that people don't realize is the effects that this is having on every layer of our healthcare system. So while it may seem like a daunting task to consider paying family doctors any more than they currently receive, I think people need to also consider that no matter what, that child that has strep throat, if they can't get in to see a family doctor today, their mother is going to take them down to the ER. And that ER visit is going to cost, you know, $500 to $1,000 of taxpayers' money. So there are a lot of ways that if we made the appropriate um, uh, corrections and put the money back into our community family physicians that we could lower the costs to us, the taxpayers, and basically just do some redistribution. So 
I think that, um, you know, I'm glad the government says that they're in talks with associations and with the uh, docs of BC, but I don't think all the changes are going to come from the physician's master agreement either. Um, The the doctors need more money, that's for sure. It's been made clear by themselves and their associations, and I fully support that. Um, But we will also need the government to think a little further outside the box. Yeah, what, like what kind of changes would you like to see? Like I spoke earlier on the show today to a family doctor who's with another group that's pretty much aligned with what you're saying, and and he was describing how doctors, family doctors, will get paid the same whether they see someone for 30 seconds or 30 minutes. So sometimes people will come in and just want a prescription renewed, which is quick and easy in many cases, but then other times people will come in with the present with a complex situation or a number of problems. And exactly. Yeah, so do you think that he was suggesting, well, maybe they should be paid on a, a per-time basis and not necessarily on a per-patient visit pace, basis? What do you think? Yeah, I think that it makes full sense to me. I think that um, to suggest that one fee and one dollar amount will suit every citizen's need um, is basically ludicrous, frankly. And if we look at other provinces within our country, they do do it in other ways. And they do provide, as that physician suggested, things that are called like time modifiers that allow them to bill for that extra 15 minutes that they needed to spend with that senior who perhaps had multiple issues that day or who just needed things explained in a little bit different way that took more time. So I don't think that it's unreasonable. They're not asking for something that doesn't already exist. That type of pay model already exists within our country. So I think it's time for us to get on board with not reinventing and instead let's do some replicating of the successes across Canada. Um, These doctors are definitely asking for basically just equitable pay with the other career paths that they have the option to choose, right? So we don't don't want to keep losing them all to hospitalist positions. All right, welcome back. My guest, Camille Curry, founder of BC Healthcare Matters. Let's go to phone lines. Lena in Surrey. Hi, Lena, go ahead. Hi. Uh, yeah, no, I've, I'm a nurse. So that's my background. And I have to be really honest, I've always been very uh, perturbed as to why we're not utilizing nurse practitioners more in British Columbia, especially amidst this crisis. Um, the, the things that nurses can do that are certified to order simple tests and that can um, prescribe simple medications uh, would have a, such a huge and profound uh, ability to take some of the pressure off of the system. And yet, we're still waiting for, for nurses to be used at full scope in that way, particularly the nurse practitioners, because, of course, they're more of an advanced care um, and, and they have advanced uh, uh, knowledge and, and, and skills and certifications. Um, but it, it really it really puzzles me that we're not seeing more of that happen. I remember going into walk-in clinics with my children and um, being able to go in there and tell a doctor, oh, yeah, this this that my baby has pneumonia, I can, I can hear it because I, I had the assessment skills. I was able to do that. Um, and here we had this doctor now that had to kind of replicate what I as a nurse was already able to do um, was just really, it, it, it just was mind blowing. And, okay. and so no wonder our family physicians are overwhelmed and have gone to walk-in clinics where they can do a quick assessment get billed and, and charge for it and, and, and move on. I think that we need to really look at the way that the system is set up to begin with, develop okay, a better relationship you. between nurses and physicians. Alina, thank you for that call. Camille, what do you think of that? 
Um, I definitely think that nurse practitioners have a very key role to play in our system. Um, and as we've seen, basically, they've been the uh, kind of heartthrob of a lot of the urgent and primary care centers because they're unable to find doctors to staff in there. And so many of them are nurse practitioners and RNs that are running the urgent primary care centers. I think as the caller suggested, though, that to be able to use them perhaps to their full capacity and their full skill set will require having to reconfigure the way that private practices um, are funded and the way that they oh. are run. And so right now, unfortunately, that isn't something that I think we can do because we need to address the crisis right now. But I fully agree that there is a place for them, and I'm sure they can definitely help the system um, move a little bit more effectively and be able to uh, see more patients. But I don't think that our system is set up right now to be able to make them an integral part because they can't set up their own private practices. There are a couple across the province, I think two of them. Um, but again, to do that isn't going to help the 1 million patients right now. And right now, BC Healthcare's matter goal is how can we get the most possible um, action for what we need to address the 1 million people that don't have the family doctor right now. Go to Devinder on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Devinder. Hi. Um, May 4th, 2022, CTV did a story about 600 Alberta starting new patients. How is it possible the province right next door where they can pay their doctors more, they can have doctors accept patients, and here in BC, same amount of money, same 75-25% split that the feds pay and the BC pays, how is that possible? Okay, okay. Camille, are, are, yeah. are other provinces doing it better? Is that true? Oh, they, they absolutely are. And again, let's not put Alberta up on a pedestal or anything, but in comparison to us right now, they definitely have this model down a lot better than us. And as the caller suggested, I've done the research myself. The health ministry budgets per capita are nearly exactly equal between BC and Alberta. We received the nearly same per capita transfer funds. So I have the same question as him as well. Why is it that Alberta can do so much better with theirs? They're paying their doctors more. They're paying their doctors time modifiers. They actually have team-based care set up, they have functional primary care networks, and as he suggested, there are hundreds and hundreds of doctors that are willing to take patients right now. They are nowhere near facing the crisis that we are, and yet we have the same type of funding model. So while we may have a different um, patient base, and there, there is data to support that, that we have a more slightly senior population here, there's no way that's the explanation for what's happening. And so the biggest thing that stands out to me that is the difference between BC and Alberta is our urgent primary care centers and how much funding that we have funneled towards that over the last seven years. Okay, Camille, we're out of time, but I want to thank you for yours. I think you're doing an awesome job uh, uh, highlighting these issues, and I appreciate your time today. We had a lot more calls we couldn't get to, so I'd just love to have you back on. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, and have a great day. All right, welcome back to the show, and here we go now with Pierre Polyev and the World Economic Forum, the conservative MP, the front runner for his party's leadership. He has long been a critic of the World Economic Forum, currently underway right now in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, Polyev has been a guest on this show in the past, where he has criticized the World Economic Forum, including its Great Reset Plan, as they call it. Poliev says that is bad for Canada. This has now become an issue in the federal conservative 
leadership contest. Poliev says if he becomes a prime minister, things will change under his government with the World Economic Forum. Here's what he had to say the other day on the campaign trail. Have a listen. And that is why I've made it clear that my ministers in my government will be banned from participating in the World Economic Forum when I'm in government. Yeah. 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 Work for Canada. Work for Canada. If you want to go to Davos to the con that, con that uh, conference, make it a one-way ticket. But uh, you can't be part of our government and working for a policy agenda that is against the interests of our people. Okay, Pierre Poliev, there you heard the big applause he got there from his supporters uh, when he talked about the World Economic Forum. This uh, appears to be working for him here as he campaigns for the Conservative Party leadership. Let's discuss now with my guest, Brian Lilly, political columnist of the Toronto Sun. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me on, Mike. It's uh, it's an issue that I've been uh, you know aware of for a long time, but also watching. I've been a critic of the World Economic Forum for about a decade, but I've also been puzzled as I've watched it become what is essentially a conspiracy theory built up around this idea that they control Canada, they control elections, they control the world, as opposed to. They're just a bunch of weird guys who meet in Switzerland, and a lot of progressives agree with them, including our current federal government. Yeah, and do you see, so let's talk about that conspiracy theory. So, you know, we've often heard about the, the Great Reset, as Klaus Schwab has called it here, the chair of the World Economic Forum, to reset the global economy. So let me play a little clip here for, for you, and this is something that Poliev and others have seized on here. So here's Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum, talking about pressing this reset button on the global economy. Have a listen to this. What we want to do in Davos this year in this respect is to push the reset button. Let me explain. The world is much too much still caught in a crisis management mode. And we forget that we should take now into our hands uh, and we should look for solutions for the really fundamental issues. We should look at our future in a much more constructive, in a much more strategic way. And that's what Davos is about. Okay, so Klaus Schwab there. So, Brian, when people, some people hear this, I mean, I guess they imagine this guy is like a James Bond villain planning world domination from his secret lair on a mountaintop in Switzerland. So what, what is it that Polyev has got against this guy in the World Economic Forum in the first place? Brian. Hi, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know what happened there. It was on okay. mute there. He kind of looks you know. like a Bond villain. He looks like a Bond <laughs> yeah, yeah. villain. He sounds like a Bond villain. You're waiting for him to put his pinky up to his mouth, just like <laughs> Dr. No in, in the Austin Powers movies. Dr. Uh, evil. Dr. Evil. Yeah, sorry, Dr. Evil. Yeah, Dr. Um, evil. But at the end of the day, this guy has no power. Yeah. He puts forward ideas. And I know, like, I don't know if you've got the clip where he talks about how many people in Trudeau's cabinet are aligned with him. Yeah. That means that, that's because they agree with him. Look, Trudeau, Klaus Schwab invites all kinds of people to his forum. And Stephen yeah. Harper spoke there multiple times, and we'll get into that in a moment. 
But Justin Trudeau's, you know, but for the most part, it's a progressive, Eurocentric talking shop. And Justin Trudeau's cabinet fits in well with that because they're progressive. They would like Canada to be more like Europe, less like Canada, less like the States, less like Britain. They want it to be like a, a, you know, European, you know, third way state. That's what they would prefer. And so they agree with a lot of these things. They have gone more often. They have, instead of speaking against what Klaus Schwab says, have agreed with it. But the only way that the policies discussed at the World Economic Forum are implemented in Canada is if we elect leaders who agree with them. So if you're you know, electing your local MPP or local MP, sorry, I'm in the middle of a provincial election here in Ontario. If yeah. you're electing a local MP who represents the Liberal Party or the NDP or the Greens, there's a good chance that they agree with a lot of what the World Economic Forum is saying. The Conservatives are opposed to what the World Economic Forum is saying, but under Stephen Harper, they didn't say, you can't go there. This is right. forbidden. Get a one-way ticket. Stephen Harper went there and argued Canada's position and sold Canada to the world, which is what that uh, basic, um, what the forum can be used for. That's what you use the stage for. Well, Also, John Baird went there, the former conservative foreign affairs minister, who is the co-chair of Pierre Polyev's leadership campaign. So presumably, I wonder if Pierre Polyev has had a little sit down with his his own campaign co-chair and said, listen, man, I'm I'm coming out against this now, this organization that you've been involved with. Your thoughts? I mean, I really doubt it. Um, (laughs) But John Baird uh, went, and I quote him in my column, which you can find at thetorontosun.com. You can find it on my Twitter feed. Um, John Baird went there multiple times. Last time he was there, I, I believe, was 2014. And he he was there with Ed Fast, who recently had to step down as finance critic in the Conservatives for criticizing Polyev on another issue. Um, and they were sent to sell Canada as a place for foreign investment. Why? Because there's a lot of business leaders there. Mike, you've got business leaders who make decisions on, okay, where do we put an office? Where do we put a production plant? You want them to think of Canada as a good place to, to be. And, you know, to give you an idea of how hard it is for Canada to break through, in the 2008, 2009 global financial crisis, Canada was doing better than all the other countries in the G20. And Stephen Harper was down in New York and then in Washington trying to make the case for Canada. Just to get media attention, they ended up hiring a firm that had uh, both former Republican and Democrat White House spokespeople so that they could get them onto TV to make Canada's point because nobody knew what Canada's story was and they don't care. And you've got to try and break through. And so if you get a stage at somewhere like the World Economic Forum, you use it to speak to these global leaders and say, here's what we're going to do. And here's why Canada is a good place to invest. And when Stephen Harper went, he actually talked about not having social programs that will bankrupt the country like Europe had been going through for the the several years beforehand. He talked about reforming what we have. He talked about growth and prosperity and, and things like that. But just walking away from it, it as if it's some, you know, uh, plague, that's ridiculous. It, it, let me, and, and let me play a, better. 
Let me play another clip here for you, Brian, because I think this is interesting how it's kind of dividing uh, conservative. So conservative MP Michelle Rempel Garner, who has attended the World Economic Forum, and she has written about how some of the some of the conspiracy theories around this and how she's been, you know, uh, confronted in restaurants by by conspiracy theorists getting in her face. Have a listen to this. Now, you're, you're going to hear the voice here of liberal MP Nate Erskine Smith. And Michelle Rempel Garner, the conservative MP, appeared on his podcast. He is going to read back to her part of what she wrote about this confrontation she had with this guy in a restaurant. And she responds. Listen to this exchange here. You wrote, it was evening. The bar was crowded. We had just finished our meals and my husband Jeff spotted the trouble before I did. A thickly built man seated at the bar was paying too much attention to me. His actions and his posture clearly said that he was bent on physically harming me, causing an altercation or both. As he charged forward, he started yelling at us about the World Economic Forum, demanding that I answer questions about my ties to Klaus Schwab. I think it's really important to talk about the conspiracy theory itself. Like the World Economic Forum itself, it's, I would consider it more of a left-wing think tank. And they also run what everybody knows the World Economic Forum, the big meeting in Davos every year. So I did go to Davos once. I'm inundated with papers, with position pieces. It doesn't mean that like they're running my life. And I think the conspiracy theory is somehow that this, this man who leads the World Economic Forum is, is, is controlling you and I. Okay, that's Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner offside there with Pierre Polyev, who appears to be the front runner for the Conservative Party leadership. All right, welcome back. Talking to Brian Lilly about the World Economic Forum, Conservative Party leadership candidate Pierre Polyev saying this week, if he becomes the leader, becomes prime minister, his cabinet ministers would be, that would be off limits for his cabinet ministers. No more World Economic Forum under his government if he becomes prime minister. Brian, we played that clip there just before the break of conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner, and she's been involved in the World Economic Forum. She was part of their Young Leaders Program. Do you think this issue kind of divides the conservatives? It does. And let me be upfront. Michelle Rempel Garner is part of uh, Patrick Brown's campaign. So she isn't under the right. camp. But yeah. she has written openly about the fact that she went and how weird it was. And yeah, it's this bizarre, as she described it, left wing talk shop. Um, but look, at the end of the day, the ideas discussed at the World Economic Forum don't get implemented in Canada unless we elect politicians who agree with them. So if you don't yeah. like them, the answer is elect politicians that don't agree with them. The World Economic Forum does not control Canada. I'll tell you this, Mike. Before Jason Kenney received his mark, his report card last week that saw him leave as leader of the United Conservative Party of Alberta, I was getting emails and messages on Twitter and elsewhere saying, if Kenny isn't forced out, it's because the World Economic Forum rigged the election. People are convinced <laughs> that the World Economic Forum decides who the leader in Alberta is, that they decide you know, who's going to run Canada, that they, they somehow ha have insight into the voting machines we use in Canada. Guess what? In federal elections, we don't use voting machines. But this is the stuff that gets spread online. Yeah. Is it a weird yeah. place? Yeah, but get over it. Argue for what your points are. Don't say, you know, that this place that Stephen Harper went to, that John Baird went to, that Jim Flaherty went to, 
and yeah. argued for our positions is somehow off limits and in that they control the country. Pierre's playing to people who believe in conspiracy theories. He's playing to the fringe to try and win the leadership. He'll be eaten alive by the liberals if he keeps this crap up going into a general election. Okay, now that said, that's a very interesting take, Brian. And now that said, there's a lot you can criticize, though, about this organization, right? Like, you know, all these fat cat CEOs and politicians flying to Switzerland in private jets and, and driving around in a fleet of limousines and, and lecturing and the, rest the rest of the world of about climate change. Vacation. Right. Yeah. Saying, yeah. don't go to Florida, don't go to California. You people yeah. should stay where you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so go ahead and criticize that, but you think that by saying that we're not even going to attend this thing and make our case as, as Canadian representatives, you think it'd be counterproductive then, right? Well, cr- criticize it based on what's real, not yeah. what's fake. And, and look, yeah. yesterday there was a, a panel discussion where somebody said we need to start regulating cryptocurrencies. Other people on the panel said you can't do that. There was a discussion about having a global uh, minimum tax for corporations and other people said that won't work and we've been talking about it for 20 years and it's not going to happen so people pull out these little tidbits and they say see globalist agenda they're trying to control us but it's not as if everybody there agrees and that the people who are there actually run the world they don't it's like a giant ted talk for a week you know you don't watch a ted talk and go oh my god they're just going to I mean, I watched this TED Talk, and now we're all going to eat ants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, really interesting. Here's the thing, though. Klaus Schwab, uh, this was, and you touched on this earlier, at one point bragged about how some of the people who he has influenced, including Justin Trudeau and some of these other young leaders, young global leaders around the world, he said now we've, we, he used the word, we penetrate the cabinet. We can penetrate the cabinet of the Canadian government. Those are his words, right? And boy, the, the conspiracy theorists seized on that. But I think that was just a kind of a dumb thing for him to say. We just got a minute left. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, Trudeau agrees with Klaus Schwab on a lot. He also agrees with the original spooky dude, George Soros, who yeah. also has a lot of crazy ideas. You know, if you don't like them, stop voting for Justin Trudeau. Uh, if you like them, keep voting for Justin Trudeau. But the idea that these people control our world just isn't true. They, they're upfront about their ideas. They're open about their ideas. And they argue in the, the marketplace of ideas. You know, stop okay. thinking that they run things. Brian, I love, the, I love the take on it. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you.